We are continuing our work through the book of John, and we've made it all the way to John chapter 20, where this morning we're going to be reading verses 19 through the end of the chapter in verse 31. The beginning of John chapter 20, we discover with Mary Magdalene that the tomb that Jesus had been placed in after his crucifixion was empty. She ran and got the disciples who also witnessed this, John and Peter, and then she met the risen Savior when they had returned back. And now we continue that story beginning in verse 19 of chapter 20 of the Gospel of John. If you want to follow in your pew Bibles, it's on page 1077. Otherwise, the words will be on the screen behind me. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. And see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we have been working through this sermon series on the Gospel of John with a couple of interruptions and different series along the way from before the beginning of 2021. And for a whole year now, we have been walking through this gospel. But let me remind you of what we've been doing. We've not just been walking through to, to see these stories and to listen what John tells us, but we have been doing so with this question before us the entire time. Who is this Jesus? To not only know what John is telling us, but 
But what is he trying to communicate about the one that he knew as his rabbi and his friend and had a relationship with? And that's not only an important question that we've kept before us, but we've seen the answers to that, given in the signs that Jesus performed. We've seen the answers suggested in the things that he taught. We've seen it in the conversations he had in private with his disciples and in public with those that he often disagreed with. And most recently, we've seen that answer given in his death and in his resurrection. But besides asking that question, who is Jesus, which will be expounded upon as we've already seen in the text this morning, what we also will be asking this morning is why is it important to ask that question? Why do we need to know about who this Jesus is? And both of those things come to their climax in many ways in the text that we just read. As we saw over the last few weeks, the move from the death of Jesus from the cross into, uh, on Friday into his resurrection on Sunday is a rather quick one. And I've often wondered what that, those few days were like for the disciples. What was it like going from Thursday evening in the garden where after Jesus was arrested, most of them ran away to Sunday morning when news of his resurrection was announced? What kind of questions started to go through their minds? What doubts stirred in their hearts? Did they, did they waste their last couple years of life? Were they wrong about who they thought Jesus was? And were they confronted once again after his death with that huge question? Who was this person? And was he really the one I thought he was? Or now that he's gone, was I wrong? And while we don't ever get the answers to those questions, because of the gap, when we finally are reintroduced to the disciples at the beginning of this text, we find them behind locked doors because of fears for the Jews. And that makes complete sense. Having just witnessed the absurdity of their innocent leader being arrested, tried, and then killed in a matter of hours for no justifiable reason whatsoever, they must have been worried that they were next. That as the Jews were doing the work of cleaning up this rebellious group that they did not like the teaching us that they were going to go from Jesus and they were going to find a reason just like they did with Jesus to go after these disciples and kill them and so they were understandably afraid and they were hiding behind locked doors but into that scene even though the doors were locked we are told that Jesus came and stood among them and that reality must have been absolutely terrifying on a number of different levels. Who is this? Why is he here? How did he get through that locked door? But one of the things that would have been terrifying for them is how are we going to be received by Jesus? Again, remembering that they had told Jesus before he went to the cross that they were going to stand with him and be his servants. And then realizing that once he was arrested that he had been betrayed, denied, and abandoned by each and every one of them. The question is not how will they receive Jesus, but how is Jesus going to respond to them? 
is he's going to scold them for their lack of belief and trust and faith in the things that he had said. Is he going to be critical of the fact that they had abandoned him and now he is going to pronounce judgment and abandonment of them? Well, we don't have to wait very long to get our answer. When Jesus does appear before them, he says, instead of rebuking them, peace be with you. And then he shows the evidence of his crucifixion, his nailed mark, his nail-scarred hands, and his cut open side, and he proves to them that he indeed is alive, the one who was crucified. But then, to these same people that had abandoned him, he breathes new life into them like the breath of God on Adam, and he sends them with the power of the Holy Spirit to go forth and to proclaim the message of the forgiveness of Jesus that now can be found in the name of the risen Lord and Savior. And in all of the things that Jesus does for them, I find the statement from John, the only statement that he makes about his disciples, uh, remarkably understated. In the ESV, it says, the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. I liked the NIV translation a little bit better when it says that the disciples were overjoyed at the sight of the Lord, and that seems to make more sense. But however you translate that word, what we must recognize is that what Jesus is doing is fulfilling everything that he had talked to his disciples about in the upper room before he was crucified. In that room, he had told them that once he was gone, he would send the Holy Spirit, and now he's bringing that Holy Spirit. In that room, he had told them, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And now as he, he appears before them, as he pronounces peace into their life, gives the Holy Spirit, and sends them on the mission, they truly are overjoyed at the fact that Jesus is alive. He has not abandoned them, but he is sending them despite their failure. And all of what he had told them is being fulfilled. But then we learn the surprising fact that even though most of the disciples were together on that Easter evening, not all of them were there. And one of them that was missing was Thomas. And when the other disciples go to him and tell Thomas, we have seen the Lord, he doesn't believe them. Again, understandably. And he says pretty boldly that until he is able to see for himself and put his hands where the nails were and put his hand into the, his fingers into the, where the nails are and his hand into the side, unless those things happen, he will not believe it. He needs proof. He needs the evidence for himself. He probably assumes maybe they saw a ghost or they were hallucinating together. I need evidence. And in that moment, he gains the, the nickname that has been passed down for many centuries now that he is Doubting Thomas. But I think we can relate to Thomas. In fact, in many ways, Thomas re represents everybody who says, that can't be true. The dead don't come back to life. I, I need some evidence to support it. But then we learn that a week later, under the exact same circumstances as the week before, the disciples are together again behind locked doors, 
And once again, Jesus appears among them, and he again brings that word of peace, even to doubting Thomas. And in fact, he addresses Thomas specifically, and he says, you want the proof? Go ahead. Put your fingers where the nails were. Put your hand in my side where I was pierced. And in that moment, when Thomas sees that, Jesus says, do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas does. Despite having doubted, he now recognizes the truth. And in recognizing the truth, he gives one of the greatest, fullest, and clearest answers to that question that we've been asking throughout this sermon series. Who is this Jesus? And Thomas proclaims, my Lord and my God. In the face of the risen Jesus, there is no doubt that this is the Lord that this is the one who is in control of all things, not only the creator and sustainer of the universe, but the one who has absolute authority even over the issues of life and death. That in coming to life, he is undeniably the king, the Lord who is in control of all things. And that he is God. He is the king of the universe. He is God incarnate. And not only does Thomas recognize that, but he surrenders to Jesus saying, you are my Lord, my King, and he will live for him as a result. And while that's a great for Thomas to finally give in, given the evidence and the ability to meet the risen Lord, Jesus wants to acknowledge that not everyone will have this opportunity. And in fact, Jesus gives a special blessings to those who, unlike Thomas, will never have the opportunity to see for themselves and yet will still believe. And to be clear, that group of people includes you and I. There are, unfortunately, let me back up and say it as I wrote it. Shortly after this, Jesus would ascend to heaven. And he no longer would be around. No longer would people be able to say, come, let me show you the risen and alive Savior where you too can put your fingers in his hands and touch his side and see it for yourself. After he ascends to heaven, we only get a few glimpses like with Paul where he miraculously reveals himself to him on the road to Damascus. But other than that, Jesus now is ascended to heaven is at the right hand of the Father. And so what are we to do? We don't have these opportunities. And Jesus says, it is a blessing to you, Thomas, that you got to see. But how much more blessed are those who don't get to see and yet believe? That through not personal seeing, but through the words of others, they come to accept the truth that Thomas needed evidence to see. And that's where John turns in his gospel as well. And he also addresses us, making sure that we understand that this was his whole point of writing this book from the start. Verses 30 and 31, John uses this moment to give a summary of the purpose why he wrote this book and why we've been studying it for over a year now. He says, starting in verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. And let me just pause there. 
Have you ever been engaged in a story with someone and all of a sudden they interrupt it and they say, oh, that reminds me of something else, but, but I can't tell you that right now. It's a story for another time. And you say, if you're engaged in that story, well, tell me. I want to know the other details. Don't leave me hanging. Why did you bring it up? And that's what John does here. We want to say, John, don't leave us hanging. Tell us the rest of the stories. What was going through the mind of the disciples when Jesus was dead before he rose again? What was it like to just walk with him and talk with him and to learn from Jesus when he was on this earth? John says, I can't include all of those stories. But in acknowledging there were stories that he never brought up, it gives credence to the fact that there were other Gospels that told the stories of Jesus. And though John doesn't himself mention them, he affirms the truth of those other Gospels' stories. But then he says that there is a reason why he told these particular stories. And he says this, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The reason why John told these stories was to answer for us that question, who is this Jesus? And what is the answer that he wants us to find? He wants us to find and understand that through all of these stories, we can identify that Jesus is the Christ. For long ages gone, before Jesus arrived, God had been telling a story through his scriptures. And that story was that he created the world and he created humans to live in relationship with him and to care for that world. And yet, shortly after that creation, humans began to live in rebellion against God. And in that rebellion against God and his will and his commands for their lives, what they have found was all kinds of frustrations, struggles, burdens, and, and hardships to carry in this life. And that was proven over and over again that as God reached out to them and revealed his will and pointed them in the path of life and blessings, they rebelled against it and they pursued their own desires instead. But throughout the telling of that story of struggle and death and hardship, God also told the promise that one day he would send one, an anointed one, a Messiah, the Christ. And this anointed one would come to set things right, to bring peace where there was chaos, to bring hope where there was brokenness and a burden. And in seeing Jesus, we see he is that anointed one. The anointed one who was the prophet to bring the word of God, to be the word of God in flesh. The anointed one to, bring, to be the king the one who had all authority over sickness and health, blindness and sight, brokenness and healing, life and death. To be the one anointed as priest, to come and bring that perfect and final sacrifice that would offer the forgiveness of sins that those who have rebelled against God and a life in him. 
And throughout the whole book, we have had evidence that Jesus just might be that anointed one. And now that he is the risen Christ, there is no doubt for that truth. Jesus is the Christ. And who is this Jesus? He is the Son of God. Not a Son of God, but the Son of God. That as it said from the beginning, he was the word that dwelled with God who took on flesh and dwelt among us. That as we see this Christ, what we learn and in and, and watching him and all of the things that he had done, that he is no ordinary man. But that God himself came to this earth, took on flesh. And the reason why he did that is indeed the truth that was proclaimed in John 3.16. That God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Who is this Jesus? He is the Christ, the Son of God. And John wants you to believe that. But here's the question, why? Why is that important? What's the big deal? So that we can you know, be smarter than other people? So we can answer the right questions on a trivia test? So we can get the, the correct answer on the entrance exam to heaven and say, Jesus is, you know, mark the above. The Christ, the Son of God, did I get it right? Can I go to eternal life? No. John says that you, and then by, by believing, you may have life. Echoing what Jesus had said in John 10, 10, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. And this is where we go back to the beginning of the chapter. The disciples, having lost their rabbi, were behind locked doors out of fear. How familiar does that sound to so many of us? That in a world full of obstacles and struggles and trials, our hearts can so frequently bind us in fear. Am I going to be accepted by those that I care about? I have a fear of whether or not I will be able to, to provide for my family. I have fear that I'll be judged for the clothes that I wear, for the things that I say. I'm fearful that I'm going to live a life with no purpose and no meaning. I'm afraid that I'm going to make a wrong mistake and forever be condemned and rejected by God. I'm afraid that I don't know why I'm here. And into that fear, the risen Jesus arrives and he says, let me bring you peace. Not only bring you peace, but maybe breathe life into you. Not so when you die, you've got something to do, but in this life, now you have a mission. You have a purpose. You have a message to bring. You have hope. You need not fear purposeless existence, but you, knowing me, can live the full life that I came to give you. And that's the message we get from this story. 
We hear the disciple John pouring out his passion saying, I've spent all these 20 chapters telling you about my experiences with this person, Jesus. And as you've been watching what he did and what he said and how he lived, I want you to know he is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And that in believing that, in knowing that, you, you will have life. And now you've been told. Maybe you've never seen. Maybe you struggle to believe. But in all of those struggles, in looking for purpose and meaning and direction, you've hit against those barriers that everyone always has. And the invitation is, know who Jesus is. Look to him as the Christ, the Son of God. And when you see him for who he is, you will have life. Do you know it? Do you believe it? Are you living, truly living, in light of that? My great prayer is that that's the truth for all of you. With John, I pray that you, in asking that question, who is this Jesus, will know him as your Lord, your God, the Christ. And that in knowing, you too will have life. If you have more questions about that, seek me out. Talk to one of our elders that are shaking hands after the doors. This is a deepest desire of our hearts. But toward that end, let's have a word of prayer. Lord God and Heavenly Father, what a wondrous story. That in a dark and broken world where we rebelled against you, and that we tried to find purpose and meaning outside of your will and your way as we struggled to make ourselves, our desires, our wants, the glory and guide of our lives. And in light of that, found only fear, confusion, and being lost. We thank you. We thank you for taking on flesh and dwelling among us. We thank you for all that you did, said, and taught, and showed by example, revealing who you are. And I pray that having walked through this whole book, we will truly believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. And not only would we believe that, but in believing that, that will give us life. That will give us direction for the trials and struggles that we face. It will give us hope beyond the grave, that as we know that you are the risen Savior, that you are the first fruits of all who believe in your name. And so, Lord, I pray that for each and every one of us, that as you pronounced a blessing on those who never would see but only hear, and that as John asked that we would truly see these things and believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, that all who have now heard and have faced the risen Savior, would know you, believe in you, and in believing, truly live. Lord, may that be what is proclaimed not only this morning, but in the lives that we go and live in front of a world that needs to hear that message. May it be proclaimed in our homes, at our schools, in our work environments, and in all that we do and say. This we pray in the name of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. 
Amen.